The scripture reading in preparation for the proclamation of God's word you can find in the gospel according to John chapter 15, the first 17 verses. John 15 verses 1 through 17. Let us hear the word of God. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean or purified through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burnt. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain or abide, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy, precious, and infallible word. Boys and girls, I can imagine when you read the first books of the Bible that you can relate to Genesis and to certainly opening part of Exodus. Exodus, which tells us the amazing story of God redeeming the people of Israel. We confessed it together when we read the law. He delivered them. He redeemed them. He brought them out of the bondage of Egypt. He led them to the Red Sea, and he set them free. But then follows the book of Leviticus, with all of these sacrifices, these, all these detailed descriptions of the animals to be sacrificed, all of the shedding of blood. And you may wonder, what's the purpose of all that? What can we learn from that? Let me try to explain that to you as clearly as I can. You see, God was not only interested in redeeming a people unto himself, but God wanted a very intimate relationship with his redeemed people. And so by means of that whole sacrificial system that literally dripped with blood... God gave them everything that was necessary in order for his redeemed people to live in daily fellowship and communion with him. That's why God instituted the morning and evening sacrifice. And I tend to believe that that was simply a, a continuation of what God established in paradise. 
where God met with Adam and Eve every morning and evening in the cool of the day. They were the highlights of the day. Those were the moments where God, in a special way, drew near to his people and communed with Adam and Eve. And so by way of the morning and evening sacrifice, God established a pattern. Every morning and evening, a lamb would be slain. And thereby God communicated to Israel, I, I not only am I your God and you are my people, but because of that lamb, of course, that pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, you can live in daily fellowship and communion with me. Because the Lord realized that though he redeemed his people, they remained a sinful people, prone to sin, prone to stumble, and prone to halt. But the amazing thing is that God made full provision. He made a daily provision for that reality. And so every morning at 9 o'clock, God communicated by way of that bloody sacrifice to his people. My dear people, I am your God. You are my people. And today I am ready to forgive your sins, whatever may befall you. At the end of the day, at 3 p.m., again, a lamb was slain. And God, as it were, said to his people, though you have sinned against me, I want you to know that at the end of the day, I am still ready to forgive. And so God made daily provision. He made it very clear that he had done everything to make sure that he could have a daily walk with his people, that he could daily have fellowship with his people, and vice versa, that God's redeemed people could live in daily fellowship and communion with Him. And that's why the slaying of the Lamb was not the only part of the ritual. That ritual that began with the slaying of the Lamb would always culminate in the priest then entering into the sanctuary on behalf of the people of Israel, and there he would offer up the praises of Israel to Israel's God. In other words, he would, as it were, carry the whole nation into the very presence of God. And then the godly would wait outside. They would wait for God's answer. And then the priest who had carried them into God's presence now came out of the sanctuary in God's name, and then he would pronounce God's blessing upon them, thereby communicating, I have accepted that sacrifice. And because of that bloody sacrifice, I can bless you, and I can keep you, and I can cause my face to shine upon you, and I can be gracious to you. The point I want to make this is this, is God, God redeemed his people for a purpose. And the purpose for which he redeemed them is to have an intimate love relationship with his people. And that's God's desire today. That's why Christ came into the world. Christ came into the world not only to redeem us, not only to save us from our sins, that's the negative aspect of his work, but he came for a positive purpose. He came in order to bring us back into an everlasting love relationship with God in and through him. So my question for you this morning is do you have a living relationship with God in Christ? Is that a living reality for you? Because as we will see this morning, Christ has made full provision for his children to enjoy intimate and continued fellowship and communion with God in and through him. And so with God's help, we're going to focus on verses 4 and 5 of the chapter I read to you, John 15. And there we read God's Word and our text. Abide in me, and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. So we will focus on abiding in Christ as the very essence and the secret of a vital spiritual life, abiding in Christ. First of all, we have a pressing command. Because when Christ says, abide in me and I in you, he's not making a suggestion. It's a loving command. It's an imperative. Abide in me and I in you. So a a pressing command. Secondly, a profound reality. And the reality uh, is expressed in verses 4b and 5a. He said, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. So that's a profound reality. And thirdly, a precious promise. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, without abiding in me, you can do nothing. You cannot bear fruit, as we will see. So a pressing command, a profound reality, and a precious promise. So this chapter, of course, is part of the famous upper room discourse that Christ proclaimed prior to his crucifixion. These chapters are so remarkable. If ever you find a place in Scripture where Christ so opened up his heart, where he so fully communicated who he was and why he came, we find it in those chapters. And that's certainly true of this chapter as well. And so Christ uses an analogy that anyone that would have heard him, certainly his disciples, would have been able to relate to the analogy of a vine and its fruit-bearing branches. Because vines grew everywhere in uh, the land of Canaan. Now, there is a lot of speculation. Commentators speculate as to what Christ may have had in mind, what, what prompted him to use this analogy, and I will not weary you with all those possibilities. You can research that yourself. The obvious point is, is why he chose this analogy. Because Christ always took analogies from nature that, were, that would very readily communicate a foundational truth. And so it is with this analogy, as is true ultimately for all of Christ's parables. And the proper way to interpret them is always not to look at every single detail, but to ask yourself, what is the central truth? What is the cardinal truth that Christ wants to communicate? What he wants to communicate is that the relationship between him and between his children is like a vine and its branches. Now, a vine... A vine all by itself, without its branches, would be a useless piece of wood. It would amount to nothing. It is, I've been told that the wood of a vine is, is useless, cannot really be used for anything else. But what makes the vine useful is that it produces branches that bear fruit abundantly. For seven years I lived in in Ontario, we were surrounded by vineyards, and we, we saw this happening every year. Every year we would see these vineyards bear abundant fruit. And so there's a very intimate connection between the vine. We could say that the vine finds its expression, the vine finds its identity in the branches and the fruit that it bears. The glory of the vine is in its branches and in the fruit that it bears. At the same time, I think you will all understand that the branches on their own would be useless as well. Branches that are not connected to the vine in a a real and living way, they are useless. Fruitless branches are useless. 
They're good for only one thing, that's to be cast into the fire. This afternoon, we're going to focus on fruitless branches because that needs to be addressed as well. Branches that appear to be connected to the vine, but branches that are dead. Branches that are fruitless, that bear no fruit. And so what this so beautifully sets forth, that all of Christ's energy, all of his energy is focused on the branches that are united to him. All of his energy is devoted to cause those branches to bear fruit, to bear spiritual fruit. And at the same time, he wants to see, and that's, the, that's what we're going to focus on. He wants to emphasize that as the branches, as the believer as one of those branches, that we are entirely dependent on him. But also he wants to teach us that everything we need to be fruitful is to be found in him. In him is an inexhaustible resource of spiritual grace and spiritual strength. What's unique about this vine is that by nature, no one is a branch of that vine. By nature, we are branches of that wild vine that is Adam, that brings forth evil fruit. But when the Holy Spirit does his mighty work as the Spirit of Christ... Because that's the one who connects us to Christ. The union between Christ and his people is the spirit of Christ. The spirit that dwells in him also dwells in the branches, dwells in his people. What does the spirit do in the marvelous work of regeneration? He cuts us off from that old vine. He cuts us off from Adam, and he grafts us into Christ. He grafts us into this new vine. That's why, dear believer, and that's so humbling, and that's so encouraging. In order for that to happen, in order for you to be grafted into that vine. So literally what would have to happen, and that was a common practice, is grafting of branches from another vine into another vine. What that meant is that in order for that to happen, the vine always had to be wounded. The vine had to be wounded in order to receive another branch. And so we can say that the vine, Jesus Christ, he had to be wounded in order that you, a sinner, that you, a son and daughter of Adam, that you could be grafted into this vine, that you could be grafted into Christ. And the beautiful thing is that in the realm of nature, um, those who have nurseries and those who practice grafting, they're very good at it. But even though they're very good at it, sometimes their grafts will fail no matter how carefully they did the work. But when the Holy Spirit cuts us off from Adam and he grafts us into Christ, those grafts will never fail. Once he unites us to Christ, that relationship is permanent. That relationship is abiding. And Christ here tells us in the opening verses that his father is the husband man. That the father who is the husbandman of this vine and of the branches, is absolutely committed to the fruit-bearing of those branches. And why is that? Because the father loves his son. And everything the father does is for the glory of his son. And so, dear believer, the very reason the father has redeemed you is for the glory of his son. The purpose of your redemption is the glory of God's son. That will be an everlasting reality. And so the father's objective is that you would begin to resemble his son. That's why he chose you in his son in order to become like his son. We have been predestined, Paul tells us, for that very purpose. And that's why Christ tells us that the father will not hesitate to use the pruning knife 
in your life. And I've witnessed that in Ontario. Every spring, you would see the owner of the vineyard with his servants. They would be pruning those vines. Why? To make that vine as fruitful as possible. And so your heavenly Father is absolutely committed to your fruitfulness and will do whatever it takes to make you a fruitful branch. Because the more fruitful you are, the more glory it will bring to his son, which is his desire and which is his goal. And so the father will cut away everything in your life, cut away everything that prevents you from resembling his son. Because that's what that fruitfulness is, of course. It is the father's design that you would resemble his son. As a matter of fact, we can put it this way. Unless in some way you begin to demonstrate the fruits of Christ-likeness, defined for us in Galatians 5 where it gives us the fruit of the Spirit, unless there is evidence of a growing Christ-likeness, you cannot lay claim to belonging to this vine. For it is impossible to be united to Christ and not to become like Christ. Because union to Christ will always manifest itself in likeness to Christ. The life that flows out of Christ is always focused on Christ. That's the very essence of spiritual life. That's why the Lord Jesus said in John 6, verse 45, Every man that has heard the letter of the Father cometh unto me. If my Father teaches you, if my Father works in you, you will be attracted to me. You will be drawn to me. That's the very essence of spiritual life. That's why it says here, the work that the Father does is to make us clean, to purify us through His Word. So, dear believer, if the Father is afflicting you, if He's trying you, He has one goal, which is what Paul means in Romans 8. All things, all your trials, all your perplexities, all, all, all of these, these difficult circumstances that often come into the lives of God's people, they have one overarching goal, and that is to make you die to yourself and to conform you to the image of Christ. Because it's all about Him. See, dear believer, you have been chosen in Christ. You have been given to Christ. You have been redeemed by Christ. You have been drawn to Christ. You have been united to Christ in order to become like unto Christ and to live forever for the glory of Christ. That's the great work of redemption. But now, remarkably, Christ tells us here that even though that relationship, that vital relationship between him and his people, in a sense, is never in jeopardy. But Christ is now telling us that he wants us to be engaged in that relationship. He wants us to enjoy the full benefits of that relationship. And so precisely because we are in him, he now tells us that we must abide in him by faith. What does that mean? It sounds so simple. Yet I'll never forget that. As a young minister, I once met an, an old saint. And I had, for the very first time, preached on this subject. And we got into a conversation. And with tears in his eyes, he said to me, I've read the book by Andrew Murray about abiding in Christ. I've read it 20 times, Pastor. And I still don't get it. That stunned me. And yet I begin to understand what he means because it's, it's so simple what Christ is saying. You know what he is saying to you, believer? What he's saying, don't just come to me, but stay with me. 
abide with me, walk with me, live in fellowship with me, cleave to me. What a, what, what a simple invitation. And yet what a loving invitation. And I increasingly begin to realize, congregation, that's the secret of a healthy, fruitful, spiritual life. So the Christ to whom we are united, he is saying to his people, I want you to get the full advantage of our relationship. I want you to get everything out of it that is to be found in me. In me, everything is... Everything you need for your spiritual life, everything you need is to be found in me. And therefore, my people, don't just come to me and then wander away again. But I want you to stay with me by faith. I want you to appropriate everything that you have in me. I hope that you understand the idea that Christ would only give his people the bare minimum is such a wretched distortion of God's word. Christ's desire, the, the Christ who saved you, the Christ who redeemed you, his desire is that you may reap all the benefits of that redemption, that you may live out of his fullness and receive out of his fullness grace for grace. What a beautiful statement that is. In Greek, it actually means one grace tumbling over the other out of his fullness receive grace for grace. And Christ is saying, therefore, my people, by faith abide in me. By faith appropriate your position of what you are in me. Make me your absolute priority. In Acts 11, verse 23, we read, who when he came, he had seen the grace of God, Peter is speaking, was glad and exhorted them all. And then hear this beautiful phrase, that with purpose of heart, they would cleave unto the Lord. That's what Jesus is saying. With purpose of heart, I want you to cleave to me. And of course, what that means in, in simplicity is that as surely as you nourish your body every day, you need to nourish your soul every day. You cannot abide in Christ unless you abide in his word. That's not a luxury. That's not an extra. That's an essential part of, of spiritual life. And that's why in spite of all of your busyness, you must make time. You must find time every day to be alone with Christ. You must find time to be in his word. Because the more we abide in his written word, the more we will abide in the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think you will know that from experience. You will know of those seasons where you did that faithfully and your soul flourished. And those times when you became too busy and you became distracted, you became neglectful neglectful of your daily feeding upon God's Word, daily seeking to be in fellowship with Him. And as a result, your spiritual life has declined. What Christ is saying, I want to be crystal clear. Christ is saying, your spiritual life doesn't have to decline. Everything you need for a healthy spiritual life is to be found in me. So abide, abide in my wounds, abide in what I have accomplished for you, abide in my merits, abide in my finished work, abide in my promises which are yea and amen. Oh, abide in my word. And then later on, he says this beautiful thing. He says, abide in my love, continue in my love. He doesn't say, abide in your love for me. No, he said, I want you to abide in my love for you. Abide in my love. Oh, he says it with such loving urgency. Because he loves you, dear believer. He loves you with a love that you cannot even begin to comprehend. 
He loves you with the same love with which the Father loves him. Think about that. That's what he tells us. I love you with the same love that my Father loves you. So I love you. And that's why he is so committed to your spiritual well-being. That's why he's so desirous. But you see what he's teaching us. And even though we are ultimately indebted to his grace, but he's teaching us clearly that as believers, we cannot be passive. That as believers, he wants us to actively, actively focus on him. He wants us to actively exercise faith in him. And what makes this command so reasonable is because if you are a true Christian, you are a partaker of his anointing. And so Christ is not asking you to do the impossible. He is saying, by virtue of the fact that my spirit dwells in you, I exhort you by his grace. I exhort you, therefore, to take full advantage of our relationship. There is so much to be found in me. The riches to be found in me are unsearchable. So when we read of Enoch, and we read of Noah, that they walked with God, that should be the norm of the Christian life. Christ is saying, my dear people, my dear branches, everything you need, everything you need for your spiritual life, everything is to be found in me. Abide in me. Open your Bibles to 2 Peter 1, verse 3, where Peter so beautifully underscores this. 2 Peter 1, verse 3. 2 Peter 1, verse 3. And there we read, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. I can't say it any plainer than that. There it is. All things, all things, I have come that they might have life, that they might have it abundantly. Oh, dear believer, we live so far below our privileges, and I include myself. And why? It's because we fail to abide in him. Abide in me, and it's present tense, abide in me continually. If you've ever read the book by Andrew Murray, he so masterfully unpacks this subject of what it means to abide in Christ. Oh, it's a, it's, you see, to abide in him, that, that's the most powerful remedy against sin. Andrew Murray makes a statement that first when I first met him for the first time, I thought, is that true? But I think I understand what he means. He said, you cannot consciously abide in Christ and sin simultaneously. When you consciously abide in him and focus on him, how can you then yield to temptation? How can sin have any attraction to you? And so why are we so vulnerable to temptation? And we live in a very dangerous world. It's because we haven't yet learned to abide in him, to abide in him continually, to abide in him daily. That's what the point Christ is making. It's so convicting also for me. Oh, he's so worthy of the Christ who has redeemed us. Colossians 1 verse 10, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That brings us to this profound reality. I've been implying it all along. He then says, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except you abide in me. Present tense, except you continually abide in me. And so the point is very simple. That fruit-bearing In other words, by demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 
fruit-bearing apart from abiding in Christ is impossible. We may be able to live a moral life, to live a decent life, a life that outwardly looks like a God-fearing life without there being any abiding in Christ. And so there will be, as we will see tonight, there will be branches who are connected to the vine, who in some ways may appear to belong to that vine. They are fruitless branches. But we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit described for us in Galatians 5. It's impossible, Christ is saying, it's impossible for you to be fruitful. It's impossible for you to be Christ-like unless you obey my loving command and abide in me. So what happens when the Christian fails to abide in Christ? Which sadly happens all too often. It will result, listen carefully, it will result in an experiential disconnect. Not a real disconnect. That, that, that relationship cannot be broken. That relationship is secure, but there will be an experiential disconnect. It's like in a family where we have children. That relationship is never in jeopardy. But when our children sin, when they offend us, there can, be, there can be an experiential disconnect between us and our children, and that disconnect cannot be overcome until the cause of it is removed, until there is repentance and sorrow and forgiveness, and then the relationship itself is not in jeopardy, but the functioning of it. That's what happens so often in the Christian life. Because of our foolishness, because of our bent towards backsliding, because of our neglect to abide in Christ, our neglect of His Word, our neglect to walk in fellowship with Him, there comes an experiential disconnect. And that's what Christ is saying here. That's why He's saying to my people, that's why it is so essential for you to abide in Me, because you can no more be fruitful than a branch can be fruitful unless it has a real living connection with the vine and draws its life out of the vine. And so what Christ is making clear in this passage, that continual fruit bearing should be the norm of the Christian life. But it's only possible as a result of a continual abiding in Christ. And so what Christ is saying, folks, is that true Christianity, true Christianity, a vital Christianity, consists of a daily relationship with Christ. That's why I began with the morning and evening sacrifice. That was God's desire that his redeemed people would daily live in fellowship with him. And that was possible on the basis of the bloody sacrifice pointing to Christ. And that's why the Apostle John tells us, if any man sin, and we do. He says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he's the propitiation of our sins. And so the moment we are aware you see, the more you abide in Christ, the more hypersensitive you will become to sin. The more quickly you will realize when you grieve the Spirit. And what must you do then? You must at once return to Him and not listen to, the, to Satan who is a liar. Oh, He loves to distort it. When we sin, when we fail, He loves to blind us for Christ. He loves to blind us for who He is. And he's trying to keep us from returning to him, confessing our sin. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's no need. There is no need to continue to live apart from him. And I fear that so many, that's the fact that so many Christians appear to be so insensitive to sin because they live so far away from Christ, I can assure you, 
If you walk with him daily, if you abide in him daily, if you feed on his word daily, if you live in fellowship with him, not just when you have your special time, but throughout the day, throughout the day, you may consciously abide in him. The more you do so, the more sensitive you will become to sin. And the more readily you will confess it. And so habitual fruit bearing is the mark of a healthy vine. And it is ultimately the only reliable evidence of being in Christ. In other words, the fruitfulness, the Christ-likeness that should manifest itself in our lives, that Christ-likeness is the only legitimate evidence of our invisible relationship with Christ. Our invisible union with him must become visible in a Christ-like life. That's why in John 8.31, Christ said, if you continue in my word, the same word, if you abide in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Think about that. And so, my congregation, we cannot claim to know Christ. We cannot claim to believe in him. We cannot claim to love the living word. That's Christ. He is the living word of God unless we honor his written word. That's the mark of a true Christian. Those who are united to the living word will desire to live in obedience to his written word. Those two belong inseparably together. Union to Christ manifests itself in likeness to Christ. And finally, we have a a precious promise because he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He repeats himself. What a beautiful statement. By the way, this I am, this is the last of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. You know that there are those wonderful I am statements. This is the last one of them. But, but look at beautiful. What a beautiful statement. Because I am, you are. And so, dear child of God, dear Christian, you are. Because he is, I am. I am, you are. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me, he that continually abideth in me, present tense, and I in him, the same bringeth forth, not just a little bit of fruit, but the same bringeth forth much fruit. What a beautiful statement. How precious this is in light of the eternal union between Christ and his people. Oh, Christ is saying, Our relationship, our union is the guarantee. Remember, remember, this is a fact. I am your vine and you are my branches. Remember, there is a real relationship between us. And therefore, I am encouraging you in light of that relationship to abide in me and to take full advantage of that relationship. That's his desire. He wants us, I'm repeating myself, but I need to. He he wants that relationship to be a functional relationship, to be a daily fruitful relationship. And that's why he says in John 10 verse 10, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. That's his goal. That's his desire. His desire is that you would prosper spiritually. His desire is that your spiritual life would flourish. Because he said, herein is my Father glorified. Verse 8, that you bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. And that was his overarching desire, is to bring glory to his Father, to honor his Father. And the more fruit we bear, the more Christ-like we are, the more we bring honor to the Father. The Father delights to see in his people the reflection of his only begotten Son. That's the purpose for which he has redeemed us. So it will be in glory. 
In glory, what will it be? In glory, the Father will forever delight himself in his redeemed people. Why? Because he will see the perfect reflection of the image of his Son. And God's people will forever delight in Christ because they will forever behold in Christ the glory of the Father. And so the Father and his redeemed people will delight themselves in Christ. But that begins here. That begins here in this life. That's why you've heard before, when God's people die and when they enter into glory, they will not do a strange work. They will engage in something that has begun here. Is that your life? Do you know in some measure what that means? To have a real, living, genuine relationship with Christ. Oh, to bear much fruit. A life of consistent Christ-likeness. That's why the followers of Christ were called Christians in Antioch. Their witness was so pervasive, so infectious, that their enemies called them Christians because they were so Christ-like. Is that true of me? Is that true of you? Paul writes in Philippians 1 verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, being filled, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Let me repeat that. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. And then Christ does something wonderful. After stating it positively, he then reinforces it negatively. For, he says... Without me, you can do nothing. This is one of the most misquoted passages of Scripture. If ever there is a passage that is yanked out of its context and is abused by many as an excuse for their indifference, as an excuse, as an excuse for their inability, who will quickly say, well, without him I can do nothing. That's not what Jesus meant here. He did not mean to give you an excuse for your fruitlessness. How contrary that would be to what he's saying. What he's simply saying, why? He's saying, my people, why am I so urgent with this exhortation? Because, and there, this, this is a, a linguistic device here. We call ellipses where something is clearly implied. So what he's saying, without abiding in me. You can do nothing. You cannot bear fruit. Therefore, abide in me. Because without me, you're not, you cannot make it. Without me, you will not be fruitful. Without me, you will not bear fruit. And therefore, abide in me. So it was meant as an encouragement. Don't even go there. Don't even entertain the idea that you, <coughs> that you will be able to live the Christian life without me, apart from me. And therefore, because apart from me, you will fail. Apart from me, you will stumble. Apart from me, you will backslide. Apart from me, you will lose your witness. Apart from me, you will become fruitless. And how grievous that is when those who profess the name of Christ become fruitless. And they backslide. And he becomes so conformed to the world. What dishonor they then bring to Christ. Well, we'll deal with it this afternoon. How many are there who cheaply claim the name of Christ? And their lives completely contradict that profession. Contradict it. Oh, what dishonor they bring to the Savior. And it could very well be is that even though they may claim the name of Christ, there's no connection with Christ. We'll deal with that this afternoon. That's, Christ does not hesitate to deal with that reality with, with fruitless branches who outwardly are connected to the vine but who bear no fruit. And so granted, the life of God's children can have its ups and downs that can be 
sometimes there can be serious regression spiritually. But the father is the husband man. And he will never allow this to last very long. He is jealous of the honor of his son. He is the husband man. He cares for that vine. That vine is his only begotten son. That he gave him and he allowed him to be wounded in order that you and I could be grafted into him. And he will not forsake the work of his own hands. And if we backslide, if we stumble, he will find ways to bring us back so that we will again abide in Christ. So my dear friend, are you a fruitful branch of that vine? Are you abiding in Christ? In Hosea 14 verse 8 we have the famous passage, from me is thy fruit found from me. That's the point Jesus is making. From me. I am the source and the fountain of your spiritual life. My people, everything you need for the Christian life is to be found in me and you will find it in me abundantly. I will not put to shame those that interact with me. I will not put to shame those who by faith abide in me. I promise you, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. If you abide in me, verse 7, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. So let us examine ourselves. Dear believer, if your spiritual life is wanting, if you have grown weak, if you're playing fast and loose with the world, oh, that you would repent today, that you would fall at the feet of this Savior and confess, confess your failure to abide in Him because He is so willing to receive you. He is so gracious that if we confess our foolishness, we confess our sin, we confess our backsliding, he is so faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to say to us by renewal, abide in me. For if you abide in me and I in you, you will bring forth much fruit. Amen. Let's pray.